In this podcast, we join Paul Gibbons and Dominic Mondino as they examine the key elements in preparing claims and claim documentation. What are the key considerations and how should you prepare a claim? this morning with Paul Gibbons and Dominic Mondino of Decipher. We're looking at presenting and structuring claims today as part of our claims podcast series. The first question I'm going to ask, we're going to look at some practical steps. So Paul, can you take us through the process of putting together a claim? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Annie. Um, I think the, the main thing for me, the key points for an effective claim and indeed a response to that effective claim there's four key points as I see it. And the first one is to um, make the reviewer's job as easy as easy and as pleasant as possible. I would suggest that key point number two is to ensure that the substantiation is a standalone document. Uh, my key point number three would be to assume that the reviewer of the claim has no prior knowledge of the project. And my final key point number four would be to Uh, not include irrelevant information or content within the claim submission. So I think from my perspective, I've seen some poorly presented claims which don't bode well. They, they, They don't show the story. They don't provide the causation, the C's that we talked about the other day, uh, the effect, the entitlement and the substantiation. And I think from my perspective, if you don't take the reader of the document by the hand and lead them through that document, you're not going to have a very good determination of that claim at the end of it by the engineer or by the architect or whoever that you are presenting it to. So make it user friendly and make it easy to read. That would be my, uh, my initial practical steps. Dominic, from the perspective on site, are there things you can do that will make it easier when you come to put together a claim? Yeah, of course. I think I think there's a number of things. I think the first one is the is a level of records. I think I think having clear and concise records um, that correspond with particular dates and and particular causes, particular issues, if you like, is is key. I think those records need to be clearly documented, clearly signed, or clearly issued to the necessary parties, etc. So it's easily followed. I think also, I think it's it's important that we talk about substantiation, we talk about record keep, keeping, but really that's the that's the priority of, of, of any claim, really. You just need to make sure that the site team, um, any people involved in the project, whether it's external consultants or people in other departments within the company, are all familiar with, with record keeping and how to you know record records and issue them to relevant parties and, and keep them well documented. I think it's also important for me that the people involved in that process are familiar with the contracts as well. They don't need to be obviously, you know, thoroughly familiar. It's just more having an understanding of, of entitlement and, if, you know, with a view where a claim does come up, what process do they need to follow and what documents they need in place and that sort of thing. So I think I think for me that, you know, the two key areas is, is the correspondence and the, and the contract um, knowledge side of things. That's quite an important point, knowing the contract, and we talked about it in, in the last session. But, Paul, in terms of legal knowledge, how much legal knowledge do you need in order to prepare a claim? I think you're on dodgy ground if you are a claims person trying to cite legal um, references in a claim submission. I think, from my own perspective, 
the claims surveyor, the claims professional, they should just be developing a technical claim that deals with either delay, quantum, or anything else um, that, that they need to consider in terms of disruption, acceleration, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, by all means, if uh, individuals think they have, uh, they can reference legal cases to support some of their arguments, then so be it. But I would err against um, developing a claim that references you know, legal aspects. That's for the lawyers. Now, we, we reference there knowing the contract. Yes, you do know, need to know your contract and you need to know what the contract says and what the interpretation of specific clauses are. And that would obviously be your uh, part of the entitlement claim where you're referencing a specific clause to support your case. Um, but I'd be very careful about you know, arguing to the contrary and bringing in other arguments or the legal references because that is not what we do. That's for the lawyer to do. And how do you prepare an effective narrative when preparing a claim? So from my perspective, I think you need to have structure. Uh, I think you need to ensure, as I said to you before, that it's easily readable. Um, you need to ensure, as I say, that the document is well presented and it is user friendly. And take the reader of that document to a logical conclusion and use the narrative to explain the other documents that might be referenced and why they're, why they're important. But I think the, you, know, you need to just keep it simple. I've seen badly presented claims, as I've said, that just waffle and waffle and waffle and waffle. And what you don't get in that is you don't get to the point. So I think you need to structure the claim properly. And by that, I mean, keep the writing style simple and direct, avoid legalese, and unnecessarily complicated language and ensure that references to the parties of the narrative are unambiguous and obviously clear. Where possible, use the actual wording of clauses that you're citing rather than paraphrasing their meanings. So if you're going to cut a, a clause out of a contract, cut all of it out rather than leaving parts of it uh, referenced because you can then see in the, the clause in its totality. Identify quotations correctly and consistently where you're relying upon comments from other people or reference to meeting minutes and ensure that the submission document is well ordered and indexed to enable the reviewer to quickly find documents. And we talk, you know, we, when we do our submissions, we have the narrative uh, and then we have the appendix and the exhibits that support those documents. So that's what I'll be suggesting around the, the collation of, a, of an effective claim narrative. And what about the appendices? Do you need to include every document you've referenced? So you mentioned there you might reference meeting minutes, emails, etc. You know, what else should be in those appendices? So I think from my perspective and from of experience, and uh, this has developed over a number of years, the appendices for me um, would relate to any documents that I have produced, so Excel spreadsheets in support of an extension of time element or where I've done a disruption claim. The appendices may also uh, lead into any delay analysis programs that I've produced from the first principles. So the appendices would include the delay analysis programs and any findings from that in my view, would also include photographs, as I say, cost calculations, 
uh, and labour and plant records. With regards to exhibits, the exhibits for me would be referencing to uh, emails, letters, meeting minutes, site records, etc., etc. So that's um, the appendices and the exhibits that I would incorporate within my claim submission. And what are some of the biggest mistakes you see when preparing claims? Not keeping it simple. Keep it simple, stupid is, uh, you know, is what, what we reference here. You have a delay analysis that covers a vast amount of information. You've got to dissect it into bite-sized chunks that somebody can understand and understands what it is you're saying, what it is you're claiming, why you have a claim and how you're supporting that with evidence. You know, you've got to put yourself in the shoe in the shoes of the reader. And if you're submitting a huge compendium of a claim document that's not written in a nice style, that isn't referenced clearly with dependencies and exhibits in an orderly manner, you're not making the reader's life difficult. And what happens there is that you will frustrate the reader and you might annoy that particular individual. They actually want them to make a determination of your claim based upon the information that you're placing reliance on. So make their life easy. If you don't make their life easy, then you're not going to get an easy an easy outcome. From my contracting experience, I mean, I've seen many claims that have been unclear, unsubstantiated, uh, minimal records, not following the contract requirements correctly. I think generally, as Paul has touched on, they've been you know they've been rushed and, and poorly written. I think I think one of the faults I've found in that is you'll find that it's not in, in the way I like to deal with it is to have one competent person to take an onus of the claim in its entirety. So even if several people are involved, I like to see just one person, you know, being the guy who, who, who picks everything, pulls everything together and actually fully takes a lead on the on the narrative, the final claim. And I've seen in the past where the planner might be have an input in terms of a programme. The QS will do some QSE type spreadsheets and uh, quantum work. And you'll have some, someone like a PM or a contracts manager will look at the causes, trying to figure out what happened and why. And then it's more of a copy and paste type type operation. I think I think it's important for me just to see you know one person to take the lead and one point of contact as well if you like with the opposing party just so they can run the person through the claim and make sure it reads and it runs through correctly and, and um, in, in a good format really. I think just to pick up on that as well, every obviously every claim requires a response from the engineer, the architect, and I think. A lot of people forget that they submit their claim, but then they don't actually follow it up and say to the engineer or the architect, I've submitted to you my claim, you are, you are obligated to provide your response. And now the outcome of that response could be that the engineer accepts your claim in full. I've hardly ever seen that happen. It may well be that the engineer or the architect rejects the claim in, in, in its entirety and gives reasons for that or the more often the the engineer or the architect will accept it but with a reduced amount so they made a, a reduction in time and a reduction in quantum but the responder the engineer their job is to convince the contractor that their award is fair in accordance with the contract they're taking due regard of all the relevant circumstances and information similarly the engineer is trying to convince the employer that the award is fair and in accordance with the contract, and therefore to convince both parties, i.e. the employer and the contractor, that 
that this matter should be negotiated and resolved. If it isn't resolved, then they may well obviously end up in, in a dispute resolution field. Uh, and then obviously it, it then starts off again and, and then you get experts involved from different sectors in terms of delay or quantum experts. So I think the response as well needs to be user-friendly. It needs to respond to these claim on a standalone basis. That response or determination needs to be logical and have a conclusion. And it needs to be equally professional in the presentation as you were as you prevent, uh, presented that claim professionally you expect the response to be, to be presented back professionally i would like to suggest potentially the engineer would respond using the c's so cause effect entitlement substantiation again and ensure that the conclusions are all clear uh, within each of the elements that are being referenced the response needs to be fair and reasonable as i've said and possibly defensive if the engineer has to make a you know a response in that regard it needs to cover the the value of the claim but once you've got your determination from the engineer or architect i think what you then got to do on the on the contractual contractual side is say okay where am i what, what was my claim submission where is the response at what is the strength of the claim in terms of the difference and what are the chances of success is there some kind of negotiation margin? So I think there needs to be, you know, a whole wider review of the claim once it's been uh, determined and before the next, you know, strategy discussion around do you settle it at the determiner's position or do you try and negotiate or do you press the, uh, you know, the Exocet missile button and go for dispute resolution, which is always a difficult one. So don't just submit the claim and forget about it. Also expect to receive a reasoned response. And at that point, you could then look at your next steps from closing the claim matter out. Just to add to that, it'd be good to, like in the contracting world, um, so when we, if we submitted a claim, we'd take a view on that from a, a liability commercial perspective. So for example, if there was, say, 10 issues within there, and five of them, we were pretty uh, confident we were going to you know, win those arguments, if you like, because it was fully substantiated. Then there was five, which are potentially, you know, grey areas sort of sat on the fence type arguments. That's always tends to be the case in these scenarios. You know, as a commercial exercise, we would liabilitize, you know, potential outcomes of those 10 items. So, you know, five could be, you know, we should win those uh, because we substantiated them correctly. And five could be 50-50 or something similar. So I think it, it was always good from an internal perspective to, to take a view on that so if you did get to a stage where you're going to negotiate just so you knew it was a bit of a fallback position of your liability uh, so i think that's important as well and what about from the employer's point of view when responding is it the same practical advice or are they looking for different things well the employer obviously wants to try and settle the matter and they are set they want to try and settle it using the you know the the agent their agents uh, advice so the agent in this instance would be the architect or the engineer or the employer's agent but you know the employer wants to try and close the matter out no employer that i'm aware of wants to be on the receiving end of a an adjudication or an arbitration notice that just ties up a lot of people's time and a lot of costs so i think from my perspective you know you need to Put yourself in the position of a strongly presented claim, which will have, in my view, should have a, a reason with determination given back to it that establishes a baseline to negotiate from, a strong negotiation position. 
then the employer and the contractor with the party's representatives and possibly the engineer should meet and try and resolve um, those matters. Looking at you know the bigger picture, which is obviously settling the matter, but also the relationship between the parties and you know would, are they going to work again in the future or is it just a one-off project? You know how do you go about resolving that in effective way? Now it may well be that you know the matters are so large and the delta is so wide that it's, it's never going to be negotiated. And at that point, what you need to do is then you know, exercise your right to get an independent third party to look at it. And in essence, the independent third party in this instance would have been the engineer who, yes, he's employed by the employer. Yes, they have been administering the project on behalf of the employer and they have a duty to, duty to assess claims that are being presented to them. Now, I think, as I say, if you, give a, if you issue a badly presented claim, the engineer is going to go, well, I don't understand it. I'm not going to assess it properly start again or they might assess it at zero i don't know but it but you need to make the whole process of dispute resolution and um, and these matters is to make it simple keep it simple and allow the parties to deal with bite-sized chunks just preserving their own position and, res- and trying to get a resolution as quickly as possible and any final thoughts on claims before we close the podcast i think from my perspective claims management claims experience comes with practical experience of being involved with claims. There are some very good technical uh, help books on claims. There's some good, there's been some very good webinars. There's some very good factual information online about different presentation skills and how you go about it. But I think you can't beat developing a, a you know, a, a claim from first principles. You know, we, we do a lot of those as a business and uh, we have a lot of our team members at various levels and exposure to those those claims aspects but you, you know it's something that you, you don't learn overnight it takes takes skill to develop a, a good robust claim but equally claim is not a dirty word as we said earlier you know it's a case of you have an entitlement you have your contract so claim for it if you think you can i would suggest that you make make those claims as clear as possible and good luck with um with your clients getting those claims closed out Thank you for listening to the Decipher podcast. As always, we've tried to ensure the accuracy of everything in the cast at the time of recording. However, no reliance should be placed on it and Decipher Consulting take no responsibility for any omissions. We hope you'll tune in again soon and thank you for listening.